Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we invite your peace. God, we ask you to come and move in this moment. We ask for your anointing. God, we pray that you would begin to minister to us and begin to speak to us. And Lord, as we gather around your word, could we hear your heart? And would you accomplish your purpose? In Jesus' name, amen. As we approach to it, can I be honest this morning? Um, I've really struggled with what to share this morning. Um, I had a whole other message prepared uh, that hopefully we're going to come to maybe next week. But just before the service, I felt the Lord kind of hinting, that, not hinting, but telling that he wanted to go in a slightly different direction. And uh, I'm going to be honest, I have no notes, I have no slides for this. Um, and I share this to lean into your kindness and your patience <laughs> and your gentleness uh, as we steer into this, because this is not a formulated message at all. So I'm not really sure where we're going to go. But last Sunday night at our worship gathering, we touched on something that has really consumed my thinking over this past week and just felt as though it was worth sharing within the wider church and exploring it a wee bit further, if that's okay. And I think that partly where we're coming to, just kind of sensing over the last number of weeks, we've, in fact, since summer, we've been looking at some pretty deep stuff. God has been speaking very powerfully, and in some senses, it's been quite heavy as he's been bringing some real shift, and we've sensed and felt that shift, at least I have, over these last number of, of weeks and months, and you can sense that God is doing something, amen? Amen. Uh, amen. Wow. And uh, I think perhaps we were kind of coming round to, as if you remember at the start of the year, we landed on that call, sing, O barren woman burst into joy. And within that was the call to sing and to explore dimensions of worship. And God has been leading us beautifully in that. But also as that call to joy and also as that call is the, the barren woman has the promise of, of life, there is that comfort. And I think that's perhaps where we're beginning to land as we come into Christmas time and begin to look at that together. But this morning, we, we kind of turn to some scripture, and, and hopefully some of this might make sense somewhere along the way. So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Revelation 4? Turn to Revelation 4. And let me set that up. In Psalm 48, there is that beautiful psalm that opens with the phrase, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of God, his holy mountain. And this psalm could be used to talk about Jerusalem as the city of God. It could be used to talk about the temple in terms of his holy mountain. And it could also be used to talk about heaven. And what it says is that in the dwelling place of God, in the residence of God, in the city of God, in the habitation of God, in the manifest presence and glory of God, where God is enthroned, he is great, and he's worthy of praise. Two things hallmark his presence. Two things hallmark his dwelling place. Two things are understood of him. Two things are said of him in that place. He is great, and he is worthy. And this psalm 
is a beautiful psalm that, as we said, we can look to it in terms of Jerusalem, in terms of the temple, but this morning we look at it in terms of heaven because it really provides a window, just that opening phrase provides a beautiful window into the courts of heaven. And of course, we turn then to Revelation 4, where we are, are, are given scripture that describes heaven and John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and he has this revelation of Christ, and he's caught up, as it were, to heaven, and he's given a whistle-stop tour, if you like, of heaven. And in Revelation 4, he, he comes to the throne of God, the epicenter of God's presence, his literal dwelling place, his habitation, his enthroned presence. His presence and His glory. And He begins to describe the sights and the sounds that are found there. And in verse 8, he, he describes these living creatures that are before the throne. And it says, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Can you just sense the breath of God even as those words are spoken? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Before the enthroned presence of God, there is the declaration of the holiness of God. And when we begin to think about the holiness of God, we often begin to think about purity and sinless perfection. And that is something that we really focus on as church people, on holiness and, and dealing with sin. And sometimes we can become a little bit obsessed with that and about getting this sin out and, and presenting this almost superior aspect where we, the redeemed, are holy and the world outside does not. And I get all of that. But the truth of the matter is, it is impossible to achieve sinless perfection this side of eternity. We cannot attain perfect purity this side of glory. Only Christ was sinlessly perfect. Only he was perfectly pure in every way because the reality is we live in a fallen world with a sinful nature in fallen bodies and we sin as part of our humanity. Now, we are on a journey in that and God is, is carving out and shaping his character and nature in us and we are being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to the next. There is this ongoing journey of holiness, of inner holiness that will reach its climax and its fruition when we cross the line and enter into eternity. But we can't achieve sinless perfection this side of glory. And so we strive for holiness and we strive to become more and more like him. But we also understand that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So when we get it wrong, we don't allow guilt and shame to take up residence, but we press in to grace to become more like him. And we tend to focus on Holiness has been the purity aspect, and, and it is, but at the root of the word holy, it simply means set apart. And I guess that's how things can become holy. If something is set apart from everything else, then it is kept, and it's kept pure. But actually, this word holy has some other meanings, and we've mentioned this before. The word holy talks about uniqueness, one of a kind, distinction superiority. In fact, one of the meanings of this word is a cut above, almost like a cut above the rest. 
And in this moment in Revelation 4, the creatures declare the holiness of God. And when you look at what they are calling out, they are not directly calling out the purity of God. The inference is there. But directly what they're calling out is all the ways that He is one of a kind, unique, distinct, superior, and a cut above everybody else and everything else. Because they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. They call out that God always was. There is no other human being or no other force or power that can say it always was, but God. God always was. There was never a time that God was not. Everything that was created, created, was created, came into his being in his existence and through his existence. Nothing was created before there was God. God always was. He spans time. He is set apart in that sense from time because he's not impacted and controlled by time, but he impacts and controls it. He always was. And the creatures tell us not only was he always was, not only was he always was, not only was he always was, he was. <laughs> but he always is. And he overmore, forevermore, will be. He's the God who was, he's the God who is, and he's the God who is to come. He is the God who's been at work in the past. He's the God who's at work in the present. And he's the God who will be at work in the future. And when we look through the story of history, we see that the story of history contains his fingerprints. We see that the story of humanity is actually the story of God himself. And the way that he has moved and impacted cultures and communities and individuals and families and clans and nations and continents and influenced them within the, 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 the boundaries of his plan and his purpose and the story that he is unfolding upon the face of the earth. The people in the, of New Testament times would have looked back on the Old Testament and would have read and seen how God was. He was at work in the lives of their ancestors and he was at work in the lives of those that came before them. And then as Christ came and lived and breathed and walked amongst them and as they lived in the era of the risen Christ, the age of the risen Christ, they saw not only was he but now is he. What they've seen him do in the pages of Scripture for their ancestors, they now see him do for them in their time and their age. And as we read the, the words of the Scripture, the Old and the New Testament, we see the stories of what God did and the heroes of our faith and, and the way that he moved in their lives and in their circumstances. But we believe him for those same things today, here and now, centuries later, and see him do that because not only is he the God who was, but he is the God who is. He's at work in the past. He's at work in the present. And the hope of the Christian faith is that he holds the future. He holds all of our tomorrows. And the truth of the matter is, you only need to live to the day after tomorrow to find out that that's true. When tomorrow becomes your yesterday, you can stand in a place and say, actually, do you know what? He does hold all my tomorrows. Not only have I seen him at work yesterday, not only did I see him at work today, but I can understand and believe that he will be at work in all of my tomorrows. God spans the epochs of time. And the incredible thing about that is that there is not 
a monarch or a ruler or a world leader or a political influence that is alive right now and reigning right now that was a hundred years ago, but God always was. There has never been a time that he has not been on the throne. There has never been a time that he has not been at work in our world. He was, he is, and he is to come. And when we see that, we can also see how he is pure then. Because although he has been influencing the passage of time, he has never been influenced by the passage of time. So if you look back on our history as human beings, you can see how with the passage of time and the evolution of time, that the human race has been changed. We don't still live like Neanderthals now. Well, maybe in Claybank, but that's a joke, by the way. Apologies to anyone from Claybank. We don't still live like the Neanderthals. The passage of time, we as human beings have been transformed and changed by time. We can look and we can see how the things that took place in the world has changed humanity. We can look and see that with the developments and the pioneering, with the advancements in education and in understanding and in medicine and in science and the advancements in technology, humanity and its very existence has been transformed and changed. I look at it in my own life. My generation, I was born in 1982. My generation, you're now sitting working out my age, aren't you? My generation is a unique generation because I had an analog childhood, but a digital teenage years. So even between my childhood and my adult life, there has been so many changes to the way that we live. I remember going on holiday one time and my son, Care, said to me, Dad, there's no Wi-Fi here. What am I meant to do? And I'm like, here's a stick, son. Welcome to my childhood. <laughs> Have some fun. But you can see how with the passage of time and the evolution of time, humanity has been influenced with that change of time, but yet there remains one who changes not, who does not shift and change like shifting shadows. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Although our world is constantly changing, he is the constant he is constantly true, constantly steadfast, constantly faithful. He is constantly God. And so he has not been tainted. He has remained set apart from that. He is pure and perfect in that sense. And as the creatures before the throne call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, what they're calling out is not just his sinless perfection, but the way that he is one of a kind, unique, a cut above the rest superior, distinct. And in my Bible, in Revelation 4, at that phrase, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, there's a little footnote, and the footnote gives us another scripture. It points us to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is that moment where Isaiah sees the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. And then we're introduced to these living creatures again who call out before the throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The two things are described as being full of glory in Isaiah. One is the temple, that the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. And then the creatures announce that the whole earth is full 
of his glory. Now, if the train is linked to glory and the temple is filled with the train and then the earth is filled with glory, we put those two things together. And that's really helpful because in ancient Eastern times, a king's train, the length of the train of his robe, symbolized and denoted the size of his kingdom, i.e. the bigger the kingdom, the bigger the train of the rope. The concept was that the bigger the kingdom, the bigger the empire, the bigger the influence, the bigger the power, the bigger the authority, therefore the bigger the wealth, the bigger the resource, and that was reflected then in all that symbolized this king, all that marked him out as king. His robe was a reflection of his glory, as it were. And so kings would try and almost outdo each other with these big trains on the back of their robes. And in Isaiah, the picture that he gets is that the train of the robe on the king of kings is linked to glory. And not only does it fill the temple, but it fills the whole earth. Because the whole earth is under the influence of the kingdom of God, amen? The whole world is under the influence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. His power and His might and His authority is at work in every corner of the globe. And there has never been a reigning monarch. There has never been a sovereign that can ever say that their influence controlled and impacted the entire world. But God, He is unique. He is one of a kind. He is a cut above the rest. There is nobody and nothing like Him. And in this moment, these creatures call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it's almost as though in that moment, what they're calling out is the greatness of God. All the ways that He is great. And as the creatures call that out in verse 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The whole earth is full of His glory. In verse 9, it says this, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Every time there is this declaration of the greatness of God, heaven responds in worship. And without jumping on a hobby horse, because it's not really what I think we have to say today, but can we notice the fact that the worship of these creatures, of these elders, rather, involved their bodies as well as their voices. They changed their position in worship. They involved their physical stature in worship. And I look around the room on a Sunday morning and think, do we maybe need to take a lesson from the elders? And I'm not saying we need to spend all morning on our faces. If God tells you to do that, knock your socks off. But do we maybe need to embody our worship? Bring our physical stature, engage all that we've got in that? In ways that the Bible tells us to, the raising of our hands, the movement of our body, not just staring at a screen thinking it might go on fire at some point, but actually just engaging our everything. Every time there was this declaration of the greatness of God, there came this response of worship and look at the worship. They lay their crowns before the throne and said, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. 
There is the declaration of the greatness of God. And in response comes a declaration that he is worthy. You see, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of God. In his dwelling place, two things are known of him, two things are said of him, that he is great and that he is worthy. And we see that right here before the throne. A couple of things we, we pull out of this is that you'll notice that the declaration of greatness is said of God and not to God. It doesn't say that the creature said, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty, but holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's almost like these creatures are calling the attention of heaven to the greatness of God. Before his throne, there is this declaration of who he is, of what he's like, and his enthroned presence, in his dwelling place, there is this calling of attention to him, to who he is, to his greatness. And then comes the response, and the response is, you are worthy. It's not said of him. It doesn't say the Lord Almighty is worthy. It's said to him, you are worthy. There's the declaration of the greatness of God, and then in response, heaven ministers to him. Ministers to him. Directs all of its worship and its focus to him. And loves upon him. And declares that he is worthy. And the other really interesting point that we pull out is that in verse 9 it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, they fall down, lay down their crowns, and cry, You are worthy. Every time there comes a declaration, Holy, 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 it is followed by, You are worthy. And here's the really big thing. Day and night, these creatures never stop calling holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I often think those of us that maybe struggle with repetition and worship, we're in for a fun time in heaven. <laughs> over and over and over they call, and every time they call, the elders fall down and declare, you are worthy. What we see here is the call and response of heaven. These creatures call the attention of heaven to the greatness of God, and heaven responds by declaring the worthiness of God. He is worthy. The pattern continues in Revelation 5. The focus of John shifts to the one seated on the throne, and he's holding in his hand this scroll that is sealed with seven seals, and it says he weeps. Because no one in heaven and on earth and under the earth is able to take the seal and open the scroll. But then the focus comes to Jesus. This is when Jesus makes his entrance as the lion and the lamb. And if you remember, it says there, actually it says in verse 5, one of the elders said to him, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. He says, do not weep. See. The word see here is the word behold. Remember we talked about this? Which is more than just look. It's a, it's a hold this in your line of vision. Get a vision of this. Being captured by this. Be, cap, be totally consumed by this. Turn your whole attention to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has 
triumph. The word triumph, it means victorious, it means conquered, it means defeated, it means vanquished. Victorious. There is this call. Behold, turn your attention to this. He has conquered, he has triumphed, he has vanquished, he is defeated, he is victorious, and he is able. He has the power and the strength and the might and the ability to take this seal, this scroll, and open its seals. What is called out here is the greatness of God, all the ways that he is one of a kind, unique, cut above the rest, because there's no one else in heaven or on earth or under the earth that is able to do this but him. And so it's called out. The greatness of God is called out. The greatness of our Christ is called out in the enthroned presence of God. And then as he comes and as he takes the scroll, verse 8 says this, when he'd taken it, the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, look at what they sang, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth forever. There is a a declaration of the greatness of God. All of heaven is told, behold, turn your attention to the greatness of Christ. And then comes the response, you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. The same pattern is seen. The elder doesn't say, behold, you are the lion of the tribe of Judah. You are the root of David and you are able and you have triumphed. This is said of him. It's a declaration of who he is that's announced. And in response, they all say, you are worthy. They begin to minister to him. In both Revelation 4 and in Revelation 5, there's a further aspect of the pattern that is seen. And that is that as the greatness is announced, the way that the elders respond, the way that heaven responds to minister to him is based upon the greatness of God. In Revelation 4 verse 8, the living creatures say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They call out, here's how he's one of a kind, unique, a cut above the rest. Everything that came into being came into being in his presence because he always was, he always is, and he always will be. And then they respond by saying, yeah, you are worthy because you created all things. For, it says, here's why we're declaring that you're worthy. Here's the way we're ministering to you. Here's the reason why we think you're worthy. Because you created all things. And by your will, they have their being. This declaration of greatness is brought and what... What is then seen is that heaven responds by worshiping and ministering and declaring the worthiness of God based upon their understanding and their experience of God. The same is seen in Revelation 5. There is this declaration of the greatness of God. Here's why he's great, one of a kind, because he has conquered, he has triumphed, he died and he rose again and he defeated death, hell and the grave. And all of heaven responds saying, yes, you are worthy because you were slain and with your blood you have purchased people from every single nation. You see, yeah, they take this declaration of greatness and they bring their understanding and their experience of Him into their worship of Him. 
Now, what, what does this mean for us as we bring this into land? What does this mean for us? Well, we are the dwelling place of God. Bear with me, I'm not sure how we're landing this. We are the dwelling place of God. He lives in us. If we own him as Lord, he is enthroned in our lives and in our hearts. Amen? Everywhere we go, we carry the presence of God. Everywhere we turn up, the, the very manifest presence of the enthroned presence of God turns up. So therefore, here are the hallmarks that we should carry with our lives. That everywhere we go, everything we do carries a declaration of his greatness, calls out who he is and what he's like, the way that he is one of a kind, unique, that there is nobody else on the face of the earth like him. He's the God that's been at work all through the seasons of our life, of our yesterday or today, and we believe for our tomorrow. He has redeemed us and purchased us by the blood, and everything that we are and everything that we do should call that out and communicate that to the world. That is our call, to carry a revelation of the greatness of God. That is my call and your call. You are created, I am created, you are created to carry a revelation of the greatness of God. But as well as that, we need to grasp the fact that we're also called to minister to Him. To come with our understanding and an experience of Him. And to use that to minister to Him. Not just to be a shouting mouth to the world, but to live out in our actions and our behavior, the greatness of God, but also to come before Him and minister to Him with our understanding and experience, with our testimony of Him, to minister to Him. And as we call that out about our individual lives, we call that out about the church as well. As a church, our job is to carry a revelation of the greatness of Christ because we are the dwelling place of God. We are the dwelling place of God. Right here in Govan Hill, every time we come together in this moment, every time we begin to worship, we're told he's enthroned in the praises of his people. We create the habitation of God. We are the dwelling place of God in this corner of the vineyard. And so these hallmarks have to be seen in us. In us. Not just in us, but in us together that we carry a revelation of his greatness and a declaration of who he is and what he's like to the world and the community around about us. But as well as that, that we are a people that gather and minister to him. And this has to be seen in our worship. These hallmarks have to be seen in our worship. We're told he's enthroned in the praises of his people. When we worship, he breathes upon us. Our moments of worship and coming together contain the very breath of God and the culture of heaven. And we have to be conditioned by the culture of his presence, which means that these together moments have to carry the hallmarks that we've just called out. That when we come together, we can say, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise is God in Glasgow alone. That our worship takes this approach then where there's moments in which we spend time calling out his greatness, announcing who he is, calling out and worshiping based upon what the word of God tells us he is and he's like, what we understand of him, that he is light, that he is power, that he is truth, that he is salvation, that he is 
He is just, and he is justice, that he is righteousness, that he is love, that he is pure, that we call those things out, but we have to get this, and it's really basic. I realize that, but there then has to come a moment where we shift from singing about him to ministering to him. There is actually a shift. There's moments, yes, we come into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise and we, we just celebrate who he is and we call it out. But church, we have to be ready to shift from a moment of just singing about him, from a moment of this is what we do for half an hour, 40 minutes to fill the time and we just sing about God to actually that understanding of we are royal priests. We are a spiritual house being built together to host his presence and our call is to minister to him and to minister to him based on our understanding and our experience to bring our testimony and our story of who he is and what he's done in our lives into that expression of worship. That even as we begin to declare the greatness of God and we begin to call out that he is power and he is might and he is true and he is light in the darkness, that, that actually we bring our own testimony story of how he's been the light in our darkness and how his power has been at work in our lives and we bring that into the ministry of, of him. The keys to unlocking the habitation of God is to embody these hallmarks where our focus and our heart is we want to come and announce who he is and we want to minister to him. Because when we do, we get caught in the call and response of heaven. Day and night, constantly, heaven is called to the attention of the greatness of God and every time heaven responds by announcing that he is worthy. So when we come and we call out the greatness of God and we begin to minister to him and tell him that he is worthy, we actually replicate the call and response of heaven here on the earth. We engage in the call and response of heaven here on the earth. We create the conditions of heaven here on the earth and suddenly he comes. And his glory is found. As I say, church, I don't really know where to go with us and how to land us apart from saying, could we step into the call and response of heaven together? Could we begin to explore this together? Because I can see even just looking around the room that many of us right now are just beginning to sense the weight of his presence. So we're in the dwelling place of God right now. Our job then is to announce great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. That in this place, in this moment, two things are understood of him and two things will be said of him. He is great and he is worthy. Would you join me as for a moment we just step into this, explore this and see where it lands? Would you stand with me? And church, let's just begin to declare